amazing things happening all over the world. And one of the jobs of the UN and people like myself is to try to connect the dots because there's nothing like seeing is believing. People, if they see it, they get it. Hello and welcome to the Age of Plastic podcast. My name is Andrea Fox. And in case you didn't know, this is an environmental podcast about all things connected to the climate and climate change because, spoiler warning, everything is. We use the gateway issue of plastic, but we cover so much more, giving you information that hopefully allows you to make more people and planet conscious choices and also hold certain polluters accountable. Good news story on the way at the end of the episode and my guilty consumer moment of the week. Plus, how to get in touch with yours. That's all coming up at the end of the podcast. Last episode, in case you haven't caught up with it yet, was all about energy, the best renewable kinds, what to look for in a provider and the amount of people already working in the renewable energy sector. So go back and check that out with my guest, Ron Kamen in the US. Today's guest spoke to me from Kenya all about the new UN plastic report, which has been published recently. Today's brilliant guest is senior UNEP expert Jacqueline McGlade. Now, she's not only a marine biologist, she's an environmental science professor who's worked for the European Environment Agency and now works for the UN in their environmental programme, UNEP. EP. We spoke during the summer about her amazing career and, of course, this report. And she had some good-ish news about microplastics, amongst many other topics. Here's my chat with Jacqueline McGlade. First up, thank you for joining me on the Age of Plastic podcast. You're not only a marine biologist, environmental science professor, you've worked for the European Environment Agency and now for the UN, and we're going to discuss their environmental programme today. So I just thought with such a vast experience in the sustainability sort of space, as I like to call it, what you've seen change in, term of, in terms of people's reaction to climate issues and climate issues themselves. Absolutely. I, I remember back in 90, late 80s, um, I actually was in a meeting with Al Gore saying, gosh, this is really a serious problem. Little did we know it was going to take 40 years until we actually got true action, both from the public, but also from governments. And, and it's not that there hasn't been a willingness on the part of some, but it's that you have to bring all the laggards, you have to bring everyone with you. And I just feel that in the last few months, maybe it's because of the COVID pandemic, that we've actually seen that change in people's understanding of how fragile life is on planet Earth. And as a result of that, I think that's why both crises, the climate diversity crises, have sort of come together in people's minds because even something like the traffic levels going down, making it easier for some people to breathe, that's, and then that coming at the same time as the political statements around George Floyd, you know, I can't breathe, the juxtaposition of those two gave really jarring messages, I think, to the public. So, yes, I mean, happy days from the COVID, unfortunately. <laughs> it's so true, isn't it? I think a lot of people, especially in the West, I'm talking to you from London, you're in your home in Nairobi at the moment, but uh, we just sort of think of climate change as something far away and we've had something like COVID re- really focus our minds and say, you know, your life can change uh, and this is all sort of COVID is also a climate issue as well. And as I've mentioned, I've watched pretty much every uh, talk of yours on YouTube. You've worked on some so interesting projects. The um, I've learned so many things from looking at those recently. The videos talking about how people don't take uh, hurricanes that are named after women seriously enough. If kids suffer from malnutrition in young age, then they grow up to be unfortunately more violent as adults. 
And I just find this sort of link that you've been making throughout your career between people and planet and communities and all this kind of thing so unbelievably fascinating. So this might be a difficult question, but what are some of the most interesting projects you've personally worked on in your career? Well, I have to say the one I'm working on right now, which is working in a massive forest. It's part of what's called the Water Tower in Kenya, the Mao Forest. Uh, unfortunately, over 40, 50 years, it's halved in size. The rivers have halved, so from 7,000 kilometers to 4,000 kilometers. But the joy of doing research with communities who are very close to nature, they have this sort of chthonic tradition where they don't see a separation between people and nature and feeling in a way unable to do something about it. And then finding that research can be that spark that enables new evidence, new information to come and almost to radically transform everyday life for hundreds of thousands of people by the simple act of planting a tree. But, and this is where the research comes in, it isn't just any old tree in any old place. And the research that we've been doing as a big community project where literally people who've never been able to go to school, they don't read and write, but they know the forest, they understand the species and they know what they're good for, where they've been able to translate that into now new projects where we'll be doing what we call carbon farming, but at the same time, being able to generate food, livelihoods, and then to improve the environment so that the water comes back, the ecosystems come back. At the other extreme, though, I have to say that my work up in the Arctic was probably the most fascinating and, and just walking on glaciers that are literally melting under your feet uh, and being with uh, Inuit and, and Indigenous peoples who are saying things like watching this is like watching the heart of a man melting. It's it's devastating. And I think that's that's been the real the real power of some of the research I've been able to do is to give people the place to be able to talk about those things um, and to really make the, the, the picture of what's happening around the world much clearer. Yeah. And now, obviously, I'm getting to talk to you today because of the UN's environmental programme. We've seen so much news from awful news coming out of marine plastic sort of research. And I think World Oceans Day, there was the launch of the Clean Seas campaign. Uh, but this August, we'll see um, the report, the marine plastic report. So can you sort of tell us what that's aiming to do? Well, it's it's very clear that the, the UN system brings in periodic assessments of issues that really matter. And they've, I think, in again, again and again, been able to highlight something at a moment when it's also hitting the ground in people's psyche. So even though this was planned a couple of years ago with some precedence, it's very clear that this is something that needs to be on the table. So what it's aiming to do is to tackle two problems. One, the idea that the oceans are filling up with plastic. And we call it marine litter and plastic as if it somehow came from the marine environment. But of course it doesn't, it all comes from the land. And really now we're putting this focus on what is the damage that it's going to be doing and is doing, and unfortunately will be continuing to do for decades to come because it doesn't actually disappear. But how could we then look to the shore, go up, onto the land and say, we have to actually curtail not just the pouring of waste into the ocean, but also our use of plastics, which are the, what I would call the unnecessary plastics, the toxic plastics, of which there are, I'm afraid, millions of tonnes every day, every year being produced. And I suppose like what's included in that, that sort of useless stuff, because I suppose for us in the West, it's, it's trying to avoid that use and having that sort of useless plastic, the single-use stuff in our lives, right? 
Absolutely. And I mean, I, I have the corresponding picture here in, for example, in Kenya, where you see a banning of a plastic bag. You think that, wow, that's very good. But of course, many people were using plastic bags for, let's say, latrines. I mean, they were literally using these for some kind of um, keep, keeping themselves clean. So if you take that away, then it's, it's actually very difficult. Whereas if you take away a plastic spoon from somebody in the high street in the UK, it's not a personal disaster. And that's where, the, that's where I think the assessment is so vital because in the end, it points to the fact that it's our single use plastics, those products that literally come into our lives and disappear within like two minutes sometimes that are causing the biggest problem. Because once they're let go, they rarely make it into the waste stream. And even if they do, nearly 75%, 85% ends up in uncontrolled circumstances. And the next thing is it's in the oceans. And then it wreaks havoc because they break down into smaller and smaller particles, release chemicals and so on. So I'll get on to a little bit more about some of the scientific detail, but it's very, very clear that we need to look landwards even though the assessment is about the marine environment. Yeah, that's so interesting. We hear so much, don't we, about toxins leaching from plastic, but just that stat, 80% of the single use is just, you know, it's not being kept captured by recycling. Because I think sometimes I do often urge people to recycle, but we need to stem the flow, don't we? We're not going to recycle our way out of this problem. And however many things we make out of ocean plastic, um, this is this is already far too much of an issue of it being created in the first place. Well, I think there's a genuine problem here for industry about recycling. So it's only 14%. If you compare it to steel, that's nearly 90%. Okay, so you've got something as a valuable product, which is literally being just thrown away. It's money being thrown away. And the challenge is that the way that plastics are made and the way that additives, chemicals are added to give us all those wonderful properties, flexibility and so on, all of that is adding up to sort of an unknown toxic uh, bomb sitting in front of us. So when we talk about recycling, uh, we actually don't know what we are recycling because you collect it all together, you melt it down, you extrude it into something else, but who knows what went into that? Now, that's one of the things the assessment comes back to and say, we need standards for recyclers because we will then create a market. So you could have already very strict controls about what you can use for packaging, in terms of recycled materials, but we could start to think about, okay, is this fit to be paving stones? Is this fit to be chairs? Is this fit to be well, many, many different products? So that's what the assessment tries to do as well. It looks to the future, but it says these are the things that are missing to really go forward. Yeah, and I suppose what do you sort of suggest for the audience, mainly for this podcast, we're here in the West, what things can we personally do to fight not only climate change, but plastic pollution and biodiversity loss, which are the sort of three pronged things that we're really facing as a as a planet? Well, I think genuinely the more pressure we put on having unnecessary plastics taken out of sort of the economy, it's going to be incredibly important. They carry toxics with them. So you, get, you sort of get a double hit when you release those into the environment. Of course, there are some favourite plastics that you wouldn't want to do away with. There are things even in the medical profession where you want plastics, but they don't have to come from fossil fuel sources. And that's what links it to the climate change. Many, many, many plastics, in a sense, have come from a feedstock 
which are then creating greenhouse gas emissions. In some cases, as much as a third of the country is coming from that plastics creation. So I think a lot of people don't connect the plastics with the greenhouse gas emissions. And if you have very cheap gas, like in the US, you naturally get trillions of dollars of investment into manufacturing of plastics. So that takes it into the climate debate and we are going to struggle on climate change. I think very, very many of the listeners might have heard recently the latest climate um, kind of uh, commissioners we have in the UK pronouncing on how really challenging it will be and how unprepared the UK is in terms of adaptation and just generally recognizing what it's going to look like. Uh, Essex, for example, is going to be right on the front line, very dry, very hot. It's, it's going to change fundamentally the way that we live. So we talk a lot about net zero. That means putting us into a position where the amount of carbon that is being emitted is either sequestered, captured and put back in, or we've actually reduced, hopefully, by abatement as many of the emissions as we can. But because of the time delays in the system, we even need to go negative before we can sort of stabilize out. But just imagine getting there. We'd have to cut our emissions year on year by at least a third to a half every year not just next year, but every year, every year, every year. Now doing that is gonna be really difficult. We don't have the infrastructure yet. We haven't got enough uh, ways in which we can replace a lot of the energy systems, it's coming, but it's, it's really, really important. So every single thing that people do, and that's why the biodiversity piece of the puzzle is vital because with a healthy ecosystem, particularly marine ecosystems where we can grow algae, the big, big kelp, they're as, good at capturing carbon as the Amazon forest. So imagine that we could have the Amazon forests around our coastlines. We could be dealing with biodiversity and we could be helping to really ameliorate the carbon that's coming out from the climate perspective. Yeah, everything is so interconnected, isn't it? Once you break it down, it is that wicked problem of climate change. You can't just expect to do one thing, like you say, and suddenly, yeah. oh, well, we've sorted out, you know, we've taken the plastic out of the ocean, brilliant, but we have to think about everything. And I suppose my question really for you is, do you think we'll be able to do it? It seems like quite a quite a tall order. I see absolute amazing things happening all over the world. And I've, one of the jobs of the UN and, and people like myself is to try to connect the dots because there's nothing like seeing is believing. People, if they see it, they get it. Um, a cotton farmer, one of the biggest cotton farmers in Australia has been able to not only improve his soils like threefold over seven or eight years. So he's capturing carbon, even though he's growing car, a cotton, he's irrigating it, but his water use is tiny because he doesn't disturb the soil. And he's got to the point now where he's launched something called, I think it's Good, Good Cotton Earth, and he's put um, a tag in it, a bit like the US $100 bills, so that you can effectively buy a piece of clothing in Europe, a pair of jeans, and you can use your QR code or the code that we'll put in it, and it will tell you exactly where those pair of jeans have come from and how much carbon and water has been used in the cotton that's actually in the pair of jeans that you're wearing. Um, so, so these things are happening on bigger and bigger and bigger scales, helped by governments. So that's why we need the Glasgow meeting where the people will come together. That's why we need them to say, okay, be brave, let's do this. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And obviously COP coming up, as you mentioned, in Glasgow towards the end of the year. And you touch on innovation and technology there with the QR codes. I'm sometimes quite despondent 
about some technology, uh, technological advances that people discuss. And I'm really thinking about the Elon Musk's trying to, you know, colonise Mars here when I say this. But do you think that technological innovation does have a place and it can help in the fight against climate change? Without a doubt, we can't do this without technology. And I mean, for example, uh, I'm working on research projects now that take recycled glass from a fantastic team up in Scotland. They cover it with an activated filter media and you can clean water. But if you just tweak it a little bit, you can put that same glass to work, burying it into deserts, very dry areas, and it can attract water and you can literally start to grow plants in the desert. So a waste material like glass, you can turn into being, so you don't need fertilizers, you just need to slightly restructure what you put in. So it's sand, silica, glass, sand, silica, glass going around. And that's true innovation. I mean, this is where we need as many brains as possible working on planet Earth. I don't mind people going off, but I really hope that we can work on planet Earth, to be honest. I have to agree with you on that. And I think I, again, watching one of the many videos and all of the talks and all of your research and everywhere you've been, I think, did you talk about is, uh, centennials? Is that how you say it, that technology? Would you like to tell us a bit about that? Am I saying it right? Sentinels, yes. The Sentinels, yes. yes. So this was, in a way, it was one of the greatest things that I feel the European uh, community has done. And that was to decide not only were we going to launch a series of satellite missions, that would be for society, so free data, readily accessible, and to continue to bring the best of science actually back here on Earth. So using all of the best uh, technologies that we had. And so I use that and I can use those Sentinel mission data to effectively, without boots on the ground, with all the data that we have, connecting it together, all those people who have collected samples of soil and all the research connected all together, in a kind of knowledge system and tell you 20 meters around the world exactly what the soil conditions are, where you are, and what you need to do to live up to the potential of that land that you're standing on. That's what these kinds of innovation and missions can do. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, in a way, it's it, it, yeah. You're so right. There are definitely advances that we really need to embrace, and I think so many people don't know about this sort of technology, but it is amazing to me for sure and I wanted to touch on that a phrase we talked about biodiversity a little bit but wind wind shield phenomenon less bugs on windshields equals less biodiversity (laughs) but again um, it's, it's actually been done in other places but what I love about this is that it's engaging people in a slightly quirky way but in a very solid citizen science where you actually can make that connectivity between I'm driving through all this wind, through all this air, and I'm going to arrive at the end of my journey, and I'm going to be able to give somebody some valuable information. So I'm not saying it, it maybe the person couldn't pedal fast enough on a bike, but if they went on a car, then, then that's absolutely fine. So uh, I don't know whether we're giving away people um, their, their bad conscience for driving, but uh, it's certainly going to help. Yeah. And you've talked about consumer addiction as well in the past. And obviously that's a massive part of this. We've already discussed the marine plastic report and how they really want to focus on, you know, having better facilities and recycling because it is a waste product. We think of it, but it can be turned into something that can be useful. But when it comes to our consumption as it is, um, do you think we will be able to curb our consumption? Because it's obviously one of those things that we need to really really get down on if we're going to you know stop the climate from warming 
But one of my students is working on something called frugal economics. I, I don't think that's a big seller, I have to tell you. I think that might put people off. But what sits underneath the ideas of frugal economics is that we can find prosperity outside of mass consumerism. That actually the work that I do, the research I do with communities all over the world shows again and again that if you ask people, what does a good life look like to you? What is it? Very rarely do they talk about money. They talk about community good life in terms of health, clean environment, power of voice, maybe obviously having access to livelihoods and education. Somewhere in there, of course, there's a money piece, but it's so much about community and that support network that people see as really the hallmark of a good life, of a prosperous life. And I think COVID in many ways has, has underlined that because you take away those networks and people begin to really understand that it's the very fabric of our good life and prosperity. Now, I bring to that then natural prosperity because we are uh, following up with some more research on is it really the case that when people go into nature, they're actually psychologically and physiologically better? What is the evidence for that? And one idea we're working on is the, the Fitbits and the various things that you have. Of course, they really are measuring a lot of your biome and, and how you your whole bionic persona is operating. And so we do think that there's a citizen science project out there waiting for us, which is going to ask people to really see the difference when they're, when they're walking in nature or they're on the beach, um, not just exercising, but just even walking and experiencing that. Because the more evidence we can put to say that feeling of satisfaction, of happiness and good life comes from other sources than going and buying another pair of jeans, going and buying another whatever. Hey, if you want to email a brand but don't know where to start, you can now download a template from my website. It is a handy form that helps you email a company or business and ask them to use less plastic. This is an easy copy and paste. Fill in the gaps and ask that brand about their sustainability goals. Just head to iamandreafox.co.uk to download. And you've obviously lived in, in so many different communities around the world, quite different from my own here in London, the Western sort of ideal. And I suppose it's sort of interesting to me that we do have to, in a way, put a put a value. Uh, a lot of new ideas are putting an economic value on those things which we did not appreciate before. Do you think that's important to sort of change hearts and minds when it comes to this? Totally. And, and, you know, there's a lot of um, discussion in the research community about whether it's right or proper to value nature. Uh, a recent report by Lord Gupta, who's very, very well known as an economist, but makes the point that if you don't value it, if it's silent and invisible, then people won't value it. So you have to get it onto the balance sheet. But it's not as if you have to monetize it. You're not actually converting it into cash, but it's the idea that you can give it this intrinsic value, some meaning in the setting of you know, your own life and the setting of businesses and so on. Um, I mean, I happen to feel that we've become very separate from nature in the West and therefore that value has been lost. Here, I would say in Kenya with Maasai and other tribes, it, it's slightly bizarre to them. They, they don't really understand because it is a continuum. Um, the same, same with God. There is one God, but the God and the, and the nature and people are all in, sort of all in it together. There's a legal tradition that, that recognizes that, Casonic traditions, very different from our kind of Roman law and, and the Western law. But interestingly, Canada has just recognized that amongst its indigenous peoples, that continuum of people 
and nature and giving a voice to nature and a voice to people. So yeah, valuing how people are and how nature lives in our lives is incredibly important. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you li- is it true you live in the Maasai tribe out there in yes, Kenya? Yes, yes. I'm actually married to a, to a, to a yeah. Maasai chief. Yes, yes. Oh, how amazing. And it must be, I just, when I heard that, I was like, it's so different. I can't, you know, it feels so different. Like that way of like you just <laughs> described that, that connection between nature. I must, mm. it sounds, it's a, so amazing and so yeah appealing <laughs> to me well, I suppose. If, if you like camping if you like camping it's a bit like that so it's a mud hut <laughs> but what you realize if you go and live in that sort of setting is that you don't you don't actually need very much clean water air a bed stop the rain coming in stay warm at night and then the, the company of of the community is like 80 percent of what or what that life is and of course a beautiful environment with the you know the Maasai Mara the Rift Valley um wild animals and so on which are very dangerous yeah. by the way yes yeah I, yeah I can imagine that would be the bit I'd probably keep me awake at night and you we, we touch on water there I mean water scarcity is something that's not really even broached here at the moment I I don't feel like many people are talking about it but do you feel like this could be the next sort of environmental and climate catastrophe possibly well, let's hope it's not a catastrophe. Um, I'm going to recently, well, I'm starting to get very involved in the water industry and looking at how companies are adapting. Um, we have a lot of aging infrastructure and unless we change our water usage habits, there is a chance that people will find that we're running out of water. And you know, the hose pipe bans just drives a lot of people crazy, right? So it's it's really important to understand that water has its own way of moving through the ecosystem. So yes, we can have reservoirs that have got water in them, but it is far better to have the water cycle itself operating. And that's why if you plant trees in a good way, if you take care of ecosystems, they do create their own microclimates, which do then create water and water resources, particularly things like peat and others, it's sort of hidden, but there it is, the water is in the landscape. What we know, though, from the climate projections for a lot of England, particularly, is it's going to get drier and drier and warmer and warmer. So water, I hope, will not become a catastrophic situation in the UK, but we can see what's happening in the US at the moment with a drought. And it just challenges, particularly the poorest, because if you do not have water, you cannot survive. I mean, it really is the difference between life and death. Yeah, completely. And well, you mentioned the US, obviously, which has had, uh, especially Texas, those vast changes in temperature and water bands, I believe, as well in Cape Town in South Africa. So, um, yeah, it's definitely it's definitely another sort of natural commodity that I suppose we've been not maybe being thankful enough for up until this point. I think there was a study not that long ago, more, more microplastics in a bottle of water, plastic bottle of water, than in our tap water. Oh, but that's the good news I have to give you. So, <laughs> unfortunately, very unfortunately, the um, state of art in the, let's say, in the laboratory was not really quite up to what it should have been. And so a lot of reports came out that declared very high levels of microplastics. And then some very good and conscientious scientists went back and checked. What they found was that a lot of them were actually microfibers, not necessarily all not plastic, some, but a lot of microfibers made out of natural products. And so that mistake 
has kind of put everyone on high alert, but there are still problems. Microplastics are still insult in, in all sorts of things that we ingest. And if you live in a place where you only eat fish, it's very likely that you will start to accumulate microplastics as well. And they do, we know, have um, kind of long-term health effects. So it's hard to say when you look at the human body where the microplastics could be associated with marine foods, except where they are your main diet. But they're in the mix, let's put it that way. And we should be angling to try to get microplastics out of all of our diet, out of all of our food, if we possibly can. But right now, we don't really have technologies that remove them effectively from our wastewater systems, which of course goes back into the rivers, which then goes back into our drinking water supplies. And that's why the technology for the recycled glass is so exciting, because not only does it stop the Vibrios and many other heavy metals and toxic things getting into the drinking water, it can also be used to stop microplastics. So it's a sort of double win, really, with that one. Yeah, and we did touch on um, materials, it's sort of leaching out of plastic and into water systems and things like that. Was there anything else that the Marine Report touched on to do with to do with those kind of chemicals? Well, it does. Um, I mean, again, you have to be very careful because we know to a large extent what the additives are in plastics. They do contain a lot of hazardous uh, materials, hazardous chemicals, including endocrine disruptors, um, a lot of things like phthalates. You may have heard about the bisphenol A in drinking bottles for babies. So there are many of those chemicals that go in. Unfortunately, it's not on the label. There's a lot of proprietary things that happen. So when they hit the environment and they start to break up and degrade, it's really like a, a mix. And we don't know to what extent those chemicals really enter then into, uh, in, into marine organisms at, at whatever concentrations. But it certainly is a possibility. And therefore, working on the idea of a precautionary principle, act before it gets too late, a bit like climate change, would that we had, then you want to be going upstream and saying, can't we start taking toxic chemicals out? And can't we start taking unnecessary plastics out? and really just focus on those things that we want to have as plastics and then replace them with biofeedstocks, for example. Yeah, and biofeedstocks, is this bioplastic? Is that what you're talking it about? It is, it is. But this raises a lot of people's um, eyebrows because they feel that we shouldn't be growing, we should be growing food instead of bioplastics. There are alternatives. I have colleagues, for example, in Egypt who have produced a clear plastic for packaging of food from the shells of um, uh, shrimps and, and uh, shellfish. Fantastic. You know, so again, recycling a biological material. And there's a big hazard warning in the assessment about this term biodegradable. Because in many instances, when you think, oh, it says re recyclable, oh, biodegradable, great, and then chuck it away. The problem is that the, that criterion, that certification, is set up for very specific conditions. So industrial composting, you know, taking care of the temperature of the of all of the surrounding environment but if you go and bury some plastic bags in the marine mud just offshore go back three years later it will still be there and that's the challenge that things don't end up in the right places yeah and technically everything could be biodegradable you know I think someone used the example of well technically I suppose my wardrobe could, which is made of wood is a natural material it could biodegrade um, which I thought was a was a really good example. I'm chatting yeah. to someone else um, from a company called New Light 
uh, that are creating air carbon, which is another sort of carbon neutral um, but fully biodegradable byproduct from, I believe, plankton. I'm speaking to him later on tonight, but he's in California. But that is another one that I yeah. just think is, uh, yeah, really exciting. Again, like exactly. you say, innovation is good. We <laughs> technical innovation. And we touched on um, the G7 summit and COP coming up uh, later on this year in Glasgow. What would you like to see from COP in particular, the meeting coming up, that we haven't seen already from global leaders? Well, obviously, we want to continue to have the commitments being made and so to have sufficient funds to help people adapt, because this transition, um, it's going to cost money up front. So we need to see, just as we did with the COVID pandemic, which is sort of in our faces, we saw billions, trillions really pouring out of national treasuries. It's almost at that scale, because if those funds are made available, then people will, will be able to make the shift if we invest in our infrastructure and so on. But for me, the big missing piece in the puzzle, and the one that I work on a lot, is in the technical world, in the climate discussions, it's called BECS. It's the way that we use land biodiversity to effectively trap carbon. And there's been a kind of rather, I would say, a lazy attitude that, oh, well, if we can't manage to get our abatement down through cutting car emissions, vehicle emissions, generally air, air flights uh, and so forth, then actually it's okay because if we plant enough trees, it's all gonna be all right. Well, no, if you do the calculations, it's not going to be all right. So what I would actually really like to call for is a big step up in the technology. I mean, I, I'm doing this now and I can see the difference it makes to have a conversation with people who are perhaps sitting on land that is not potentially as good at trapping carbon as others, and yet they still want to do it. What we need are the resources to pay people to help them, let's say, take land that's not very productive out of that and turn it into carbon storage. So to be very proactive, but very strategic and very clear about where we can make those gains. So that's one big piece. Second big piece is to really genuinely help all of the pieces to connect together, the policy coherence, so that business and investment don't feel that there's a risk because you know you invest in a renewable energy and then suddenly the, the financial market changes or the planning arrangements change or many different. So what we need to see is all this joined up. And a great example is what's happening in Essex in the county where the county uh, set up a climate commission and a very, a very, very ambitious plan to put a third of it under a climate focus area and say, we're going to do our very best with farmers, with landowners, with people who are living there to take Essex into a net zero by 2050, but to get halfway there in 10 years. And this is, this is fantastic. And it's at every level, at the urban level, transport, uh, energy, land use, everything. So they've really got the idea of connecting all the dots together. Yeah, and I think that point you touched on about paying people to use their land to, to trap carbon better. Well, we are in a sort of carbon economy and we need to sort of get away from the old sort of ways of doing things. And, and actually, we do live within a capitalist society. So people, if they have that land, they kind of need to be recompensed for it as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, and of course, then to help us have healthier food and all the other things that come with that. 
Yeah, completely. Um, well, we're nearly at the end of our time together, but I do always ask oh. two questions. But um, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I could pick <laughs> your brains for hours. But um, we do always, we call the age of plastic. It's a gateway issue for so many people. But it is a good material, as you've said. We, you know, use in medical. We do sort of want that plastic there still. But is there a non-single-use item in your life that contains plastic that you're actually quite happy for, that you're thankful for plastic? I would have to come back to a medical use. I mean, I, I, I really do think, unfortunately, that's about the only category where I would say this is the place where we should find it. And I can't think of anything else in my life where I wouldn't substitute out plastic if I could. Yeah, I often say things like this microphone. But again, if, I could, if, if only it had been made with something other than plastic, I'd be completely happy with it. So mm. maybe in years to come, we'll find road mics uh, made with some sort of bioplastic or something else instead that we've discussed today. Uh, my final question as well for you, Jacqueline, then um, yeah. your environmental hero, please. I've chosen three because I think we should be gender balance and age balance I'm ever so sorry about that so but they come they come in a kind of triple because they've all got something very very similar and it's this uh, passion for exploration so my my own feeling about the planet is it's the most amazing place and I've loved every exploration so top of the pile Sylvia Earle uh, she was the one who just went into the ocean, the, you know, the, the, the babes as they were known, and she, she lived under North, the, the aquanauts and so on. But alongside of her, I put Bertrand Picard with the solar impulse, um, way ahead of his time and thinking, but of course a huge tradition of Auguste Picard, Jacques Picard, going to the depths of the ocean, going to the height of the atmosphere, and just being so brave and adventurous. And I think Sylvia Earle and Bertrand. But then I have to put... Greta Thunberg in the middle, because she set off on an adventure, you know, sailing across the Atlantic and, and doing all the things that really a 16 year old shouldn't have to do, even though it's fun. Um, and I think she's a, an adventurer at heart. And I think given her own personal setting, it's been incredibly brave of her. So I like to put bravery together with passion and exploration and uh, think about them as a trio. I love that. Thank you so much for talking to me today. That said, I'm going to have to go away and research those three, but I absolutely love that. Um, Jacqueline McGlade, thank you so much for talking to me for the Age of Plastic podcast. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. The wonderful Jacqueline McGlade speaking from her home in Kenya there, so please do excuse any sound issues. If you want to look more at this report, which is out this month, From Pollution to Solution is this UN report name. The link is in the show notes. I've also put some links there for more talks from Jacqueline McGlade, some brilliant TED Talks, if you want to hear more from her. I had such a lovely time chatting to her. really appreciate her time. On to some good news now, a good news story of the day, because we need it. Could we all be flying off on holiday thanks to mustard? A plant-based jet fuel which can reduce emissions by 68% without displacing crops is being developed courtesy of new research from the University of Georgia. You can find out more details in the show notes. That is our new good news section for this series of the Age of Plastic podcast. On to my guilty consumer moment. Went to recycle some beauty items. You know I love a bit of beauty. Only to be told that there was a time limit on this thing. I thought it was a UK department store's new thing that they were going to have forever. No, bring five items back, you get £5 off, but only until the end of October. And also, you don't get £5 off to spend whenever. You had to buy something else new there and then. They caught me in the consumerist trap and I did it anyway. So I ended up taking five items of unrecyclable plastic in and leaving with another brand new one. 
if anyone knows of uh, any eco mascaras, uh, do please get in touch. Is this greenwashing offering a recycling program that makes you consume more? I think quite possibly. Answers on a postcard or via the DMs on our socials, Age of Plastic Podcast, on Instagram. And if you're not on Instagram, don't worry, you can email me and get in touch or find all of our other social medias. All of the links are in the show notes wherever you are listening right now. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Going to be back next week. Coming up on the next episode, can all plastic be replaced by seaweed? find out next week on the age of plastic podcast until then wear a mask wash your hands 